podcast, Bonnie and Mike and Tim all have gathered virtually to introduce a really um, interesting interview. It, we, we had, okay, so so first let me intro the book. Um, uh, I, the, the book we're discussing today is a, a book called Romans Disarmed. And it's written by two scholars, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat. And they are... Um, they wrote a book years and years and years ago called Colossians Remixed. It was one of the coolest commentaries I've ever read because it blended like fictional characters and, and I mean, it just had all the di- it, had a, it had several different genres in the book to make kind of the point about how subversive Colossians is to Empire. So I was super stoked when I saw that they had a book coming out. Um, they live. It's so funny. They're married and they live on a farm a permaculture farm two hours outside of Toronto. They don't have cell phones. Um, I mean, and it's really, and they get into like in the book, they really get into like, why? I mean, it's unbelievable. But um, all that is to say we had, we, we had a very poor connection and they drop out a couple of times, but there's so, there's still like good stuff here. So we're going to, you know, Tim's done his best to clean it up, but we're still going to, with apologies, release it and then um and then bonnie had a great idea last episode we talked about hey how how we do interviews and should we ever disagree or whatever and bonnie had a great idea out of that bonnie why don't you go ahead and and share that yeah i thought it would be a good idea to do a shorter intro and then listen to the interview and then come us three come back on for like an outro and sort of discuss what was said on the interview um because i think like you said, we want to model listening when we have the guests on. We want to we want to be generous towards them and let them have their best stuff. But we also want to show that like we're being thoughtful about these ideas and sort of critiquing where it needs to be or just discussing them at least. And it might give you guys as the community sort of places that you can then further the discussion. No, that's really good. We because we keep hearing that you want to hear what we're thinking. Yeah, as we're about doing some these. of these topics. Yes, exactly. So Bonnie, genius freaking genius idea um that's why that's why bonnie is no longer co-host she is host i am producer and tim (laughs) has now been promoted to just i don't know the face the face of the podcast on pins and needles for that one (laughs) all right so so here so this is sylvia and brian and i was so stoked and forgive me i fanboy all over the place because this is one step closer to N.T. Wright because she studied under N.T. Wright. But also she, well, well, this I've read all, all their, not all their books, but several of their books. And I'm just great respect, even though we certainly don't agree on everything. So I was, I was a little bit geeked out and uh, forgive me for not maintaining my journalistic professionalism. <laughs> anyway, hope thinks of when they think of Wait, Mike can Eries. you? It's <laughs> fangirling. Wait, can you give some background? How, what is the, how is the book written? Is it okay. written like their opinion? Is it a commentary? Have they? Is it like a message thing? Like what's happening in the book? How is it written? Oh so goodness. people sort of okay. have some context. Okay, it, it is a commentary that okay. includes laments for creation, targums, which were interpretations and um, translations uh, from he- the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. Um, so when, when we came, when the, when Israel came back from exile, um, 
not everyone spoke Hebrew. And so what they would do, the, the, the teachers and the rabbis would read the Hebrew, but then they would translate it into Aramaic and add commentary. And mm. those translations plus commentaries are called targums. Uh, they, mm. actually ha- they actually use that device in the book. They have a couple of fictional characters where you kind of enter into first century Rome through huh. their eyes. Um, they do some exegetical work. So it's a whole combo. That was what was brilliant about Colossians Remixed was it was like commentary that was different than every other commentary. Nice. Um, Romans Disarmed is very similar to that. Um, okay. and, then, and then they, but then they get into some really like, we talk about, they talk about watersheds um, and, and being aware of your local watershed and where you get your water. Um, they, they, they have a whole chapter on environmental issues. Um, mm. And uh, so, so it, it's this really eclectic combo of commentary and then their reflections on what that commentary would look like played out today against empire and obviously empire for them. Um, and for most these days means kind of the American sort of hegemo- hegemony. Um, uh, so, so anyway, it's super interesting, cool. uh, very controversial, but, um, but the conversation is certainly worth having. So thanks for that clarification. But anyway, hope you folks enjoy it and, uh, we'll meet you on the other side. Hi everybody. Welcome to the Vox podcast. Um, I am Mike Erie and I'm so glad to be with you today. And I have live from two hours outside of Toronto, two scholars that I cannot believe I get a chance to talk with. Sylvia Kiesmat and Brian Walsh are the authors of a book that was so incredibly important to me when I was younger uh, called Colossians Remixed. Uh, and they've just come out with a new book called Romans Disarmed. Uh, Sylvie and Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. They, uh, if you don't know, um, these two are, are probably the most unique scholars I think I've ever uh, read. They live out in, in unbelievably powerful ways uh, what it is they're, they're inviting people into. They live in a farm, and it's amazing, and I'm sure you get asked about that all the time. But I would love to talk um, it, it very generally before we get to the specifics about the book. When you, when you guys look at Christianity in the West, um, and Canada and America, uh, what is it that concerns you, and what is it that gives you hope these days? Oh my goodness! <laughs> I know, right? Uh, what what concerns me is that Christendom uh, isn't dying quick enough. Uh, <laughs> I just wish the whole thing would, would die a, a lot a lot quicker death, um, and and not find itself uh, in this situation of having made such an incredibly unholy alliance uh, with the empire. Uh, I, I, I kind of stopped. I call myself an evangelical when I'm around non-evangelicals. Uh, huh. When I'm around evangelicals, I kind of stay away from, from the term, uh, and, and especially in the United States of America. Uh, I am so, so disheartened uh, by the apostasy of the evangelical church, mm. uh, having gotten bed with, uh, with uh, nationalism, and white supremacy, uh, and uh, and a, a 
uh, a president uh, of, of such incredibly uh, low moral character uh, and uh, dictatorial tendencies. So, so sorry to start off on such a, a bummer there. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, hey, hey, I asked. Absolutely. And I figured I'd get something fiery. Yeah. <laughs> so I love and, it. And, I love it. And where, where I, I find incredible encouragement, though, uh, is in uh, uh, folks young and old uh, uh, who are really seeking for an alternative uh, path of discipleship that wants to take uh, much, much more seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, uh, what it means that, uh, that love is the power of the universe. Uh, and and how that works its way out in literally every dimension of our lives. Now that uh, gets yeah. me pretty excited. <laughs> Sylvia, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think one thing I, I would say is that I think Christianity uh, finds itself in this unholy alliance because very early on Christianity uh, made an alliance with a kind of Platonist philosophy that separated uh, separated us from our bodily earthly life, right? It, it became all about yeah. getting to heaven. Yeah. And if it's all yeah. about getting to heaven, then then it doesn't matter so much if the world's going to hell in a handbasket because right. we're going to be whisked away anyway, right? Yeah. Um, and, and people are now starting, you know, we, we have young people now for whom uh, – it's not unusual for them to say, but of course it's about the new earth and it's about the resurrection. Right. And that means, that means we need to be deeply concerned about creation yeah. and need to be deeply concerned about our social structures. And so there is also, I think a lot of hope in where uh, people, people are sort of becoming aware that the biblical worldview uh, is not about uh, being whisked away to heaven but it's about embodied, faithful, creaturely life on earth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you see uh, the Bible being co-opted in the, the tribal, kind of the tribal conflicts uh, these days? I love that you point to each other. I think it's fantastic. Because I don't, I don't know who the best one to, to ask to, so I'm just throwing it out and figuring you guys will you know, respond in kind. But um, how, how do you see the Bible co-opted? Because where I want to get to is just why Romans and why disarm Romans. But, but before I even get to the specific book, the Bible is being used in these tribal wars. How do you, what do you observe about that? What would you see as corrections needed for that? Well, I think... One of the things that happens is, you know, and this has always happened and it happens on both sides of almost every issue, is that people use the Bible in a very um, uh, first individualistic and secondly, <laughs> proof texting kind of way. Right. right, right. So uh, God isn't talking necessarily to a community of people. God isn't trying to shape a community of people, but God is giving us individual moral um, pointers for how yeah. to live. That's good. And, and if yeah. that's how you think about the text, then it's very easy to just sort of uh, abstract texts here and there outside of the larger narrative. Right. Um, if, however, you realize that this is a book about God's shaping of a community that will be for the healing of the earth and for all the nations of the earth, right? Because that's, that's what... Um, call of Abraham was for, right? Like right. the story very quickly turns from a good creation into a creation that is 
distorted and cursed. And the whole rest of the story is God's working to bring healing and redemption and forgiveness into that situation of evil and brokenness. And how does God decide to do that? Well, by calling Abraham, God doesn't yeah. say to Abraham, I want you to have a close personal relationship with me, Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you because your offspring are going to bless all the nations of the earth. You are going to be the community that shows the whole world what it is to live in faithful relationship with God in a community that is intended for healing and redemption. Mm. And the whole of the book is about that. And unless we start reclaiming that whole narrative and that whole calling that what what does that community look like? What is God calling us to be together mm. um, as a society, as a church, as a people, as a neighborhood? Actually, yeah. that's even a better question. Um, uh, unless we're kind of looking for that kind of a narrative thread to hold the text together, we're invariably going to fall into this individualistic proof texting kind of reading of the text. Oh, my goodness. I would imagine uh, a lot of your listeners would be able to quote 2 Timothy 3.16, which is, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. He's such a Bible thumper, isn't he? There you are. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm a convert, so I, I know this stuff. And, and, and I, I, I really important that the first two things there, I mean, it's, it's for teaching and, and then reproof and correction, right? Right, right. And it seems to me that the, the scriptures uh, have also been co-opted uh, as the legitimation of theological systems. Mm. So that, that once once you uh, theologize the scriptures and, and you 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 uh, uh, boil it down and that's probably the right metaphor boil it down to to kernels of eternal truth that they become doctrines mm. you you lose uh, you start with you lo- you lose the, the dynamic narrative character of the scriptures absolutely and and then you also end up with a text uh, that gets read through the lens of those doctrines yes and yeah, and that means true. that invariably the text very seldom corrects or reproves us and doesn't teach us anymore because we already have it figured out yeah so uh and now everybody's guilty of this you know if yeah. if uh, if every time you read the scriptures the scriptures confirm what you already thought then you're undoubtedly misreading the scriptures right <laughs> so so the scriptures need to be correctly reproved all of us you know yeah. include, include us but there is a certain way in the tradition of christendom where the scriptures have been co-opted into a system of of, uh, of theological doctrines so you can read romans and you can find the roman road in 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 romans that was the path to salvation yeah uh, and it is as sylvia said a, a bunch of proof texts but also not only does it close us down to the dynamic living word of god yeah but it also means that the text invariably becomes a weapon that you use against your theological enemies. Come on. You know? Oh, so we're preaching. So Who's now we're preaching? Are, are we preaching yet? I mean, this is <laughs> amazing. Well, well, and that text goes on and for training in justice. Usually it's translated, you know, the scriptures are also for training in righteousness. Yeah. But that Greek word is dikaiosune, right. uh, which also occurs a lot in Romans. And that's, you know, Dikaiosune is a translation of two Hebrew words, justice and righteousness. And so the overtones of justice are always there. So, yes, 
The scriptures are also there for training us how to act justly. What is it to shape that just society? What is it to interact with people justly? And that little bit gets dropped off, usually, of that verse. Oh, absolutely. It ends with, and enabling us for all forms of good works, right? This is a text that is only alive when it becomes alive in in the praxis of the Christian community, and that is a radical discipleship praxis. Oh, my Lord. Okay. I'm just going to take notes. I'm just going to stop asking questions. And you guys, I just want to hear you talk for 30 minutes. Um, well, I mean, when I was in seminary, I had four systematic theology classes. Mm-hmm. And what we did we're, we're is... sorry for that. I know. Oh, me too. Me too. I mean, what an impoverished way of, of com- coming to theology. Here's doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Here's the doctrine of the church. And it's just lists of texts. And um, you systematize your faith, yeah. and exactly right. You can't help but weaponize it. So so how do you guys, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like you're familiar enough with that way of doing this. How, how have you guys learned to approach the text differently in, in a way that opens it up um, and leaves us more full than, than hungry? Oh, well... Um... I guess there's a couple of different things. One is that we have, uh, we tend to approach the text as a narrative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how is the narrative working? Um, if this is the story of God's interaction with the world and God's interaction with uh, first the people of Israel and God's interaction with us, what, you know, what does that uh, tell us about how, how God wants to be in relationship with us and what lengths God is willing to go to, to stay in relationship with us. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, you know, people, people will talk all kinds of different ways about the atonement. uh, But when I'm talking to my students in class, you know, one of the things I say is, well, just what does the story tell us about how God, how sin affects God, right? And, and how God, goes about making things right with us. And what the story tells us is that God is grieved. Mm-hmm. God is incredibly sad about this. And, and always in the prophets, when you have, have language about you know, God's anger, uh, the God-word side of that anger is always grief. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's often couched in language of, of grief and sorrow. And parents uh, can understand that. That's, that's very exactly. much a parental, like a father-mother yeah, that's ex- that's exactly it. And um, so, what does that tell us? You know, so so the whole idea of the atonement, you know, that we that's popular in evangelical circles, that you know, God mm-hmm. is pissed off with us, and so somebody has to die, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Jesus. He sticks it to Jesus. You know, um, that doesn't fit in with that kind of grief. You know, the reason, you know, Paul even says in Romans, the reason the reason Jesus died for us is because God loved us. God's love for us went so far that Jesus took on took on this suffering on the cross and was willing to bear evil. Um, and so, and so to break the power of evil. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of that is better informed by a narrative than by trying to rationally think through how, how God works in, mm. in the world. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of it, approaching things narratively. Um, how do you do that with an epistle? So, so when you get to you get to Romans, how do you how do you how do you uh, when, when it's not clearly, uh, although it, it's embedded in context, mm-hmm. of course. How, how do you do that within a, a letter like Romans? 
Oh, with Romans, it's it's actually pretty easy. Uh, it once once you get rid of your theological uh, bias that this is systematic theology. Uh, Paul mm. is engaging in storytelling all the way through. Mm. I mean, he has a whole chapter on Abraham. Mm. He has a whole chapter on Adam. He has three chapters on the history of, of Israel. Mm. So the, the excellent whole, answer, excellent. Yeah, so the, the whole epistle is is uh, rooted not just in those texts, but all the way through in a narrative. And the narrative is, of course, the narrative of Israel interpreted, radically interpreted, in the light of the story of Jesus, yep. placed in the context of another narrative, which is the meta-narrative of the Roman Empire, hmm. right? So, so we, we have, we have uh, 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 now three narratives going on, Jesus' story, Israel's story, Roman story, and then there's, there's at least a fourth, and that is what's the story going on in these communities in Rome at this time? What's the problem? What, what are the dynamics in that community? What's their story? And I, so didn't realize, is, I, did, I, I didn't realize I gave you the biggest softball question in the history of the world. That was amazing. It's <laughs> so good. Holy cow. We almost had to arm wrestle to see who would answer it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, why Romans? Well, Romans. I mean, I mean, the short the short answer to that is, you know, I did part of my doctoral dissertation on Romans, and I've been reading around in Romans for a while. Um, yeah. But also, Romans is, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a challenge. Like like you said, you didn't realize that was a softball question for us, but for most people, Romans is this incredibly daunting book. It seems like oh, this absolutely. theologically heavy. You know, people just say, when we ask people what they most love, and we ask people sometimes what most attracts you to Romans and what most repels you. Yeah. And a lot of people just say, well, I'm, I can't figure out what the heck he's talking about. Right. Uh, um, so that's that's part of, part of it. Um, <laughs> but Romans also just has some of the most... Um, has some of the most beautiful language in the epistles. Uh, you know, a lot of people go to Romans for solace. Um, but conversely, Romans also has been used most often as a weapon to beat up on all kinds of communities and all kinds of people uh, in and outside of the church. So it felt like Romans was a text that itself needed to be disarmed, uh, needed, to, needed a redemptive and healing word itself. Um, we have a lot of students who have been traumatized by Romans. Hmm. So um, for them, I don't think we realized this when we started, but now that we've taught this a few times, hmm. there are people who thank us for freeing Romans for them and, and making it possible for them to read it again. Hmm. So in the end, the book has ended up being a pastoral endeavor, which of course, most writing should be a pastoral oh, yeah. endeavor. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I was I I loved that you had talked about Romans because it's the core. It seem and I could be overgeneralizing, but it seems like it represents the core of the evangelical subculture that many of us are are um, wrestling with. So you have Romans thirteen and submission to authorities. You've got uh -huh. Romans one and sexuality. You've got predestination and the and the neo reformed movement um, nine through eleven, which just seems you know. Uh, indecipherable. Um, uh, you, and you do have all the classic words, justification, faith, righteousness, right? So, so it seems like the, the thing I thought was, that was so, so interesting was that this is kind of the heart of the evangelical, 
if I could refer to evangelical, the evangelical industrial complex, Romans <laughs> is kind of at the heart of that. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So, and, and again, I'm, I'm sure there are many other reasons um, why you went after it. But when you, um, when you approach a book like Romans, where, where do you begin? So it sounds like one of the things you're doing is saying, hey, okay, here's where, here are, the, here are four narratives that are going on. Um, but, but how do you, how do you personally be enter into a text like that to begin to open it up? Yeah. I mean, that we could answer that in all kinds of ways. I mean, on one level, uh, you, you do new kinds of historical scholarship. You, you come to this text asking new questions. So what happens if you come to Romans and, and the question that you ask is, um, uh, how, how would a slave have heard, heard this, this epistle? How would a uh, a uh, a Jew uh, who had been in in Rome for a very long time, living at subsistence, how would he have have heard this? Uh, so so you 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 end up uncovering new historical uh, uh, data in a sense, or new historical perspectives by asking new historical questions. Hmm. But I think that the other way to talk about that to to go back to Sylvia's very first answer and uh, and the narrative, the story, which you notice she immediately went to the grief of God, mm -hmm. that this is a story suffused with grief, uh, the Israel's story. Um, Jesus is a man of sorrows. And so then the question becomes, what access do we as um, uh, cisgendered, white, privileged uh, couple, uh, what, what access do we have uh, to Romans uh, if it's not through sorrow. And so we found our, our way, our entrance, uh, even I would say, you know, we Herman suffering. Hmm. And, and we do so because we think the scriptures do so. And we think that, in fact, Paul uh, to such sorrow. He, he's very clear about that at the beginning of chapter 9, but you can feel the pathos, I think, already in chapter 1. So uh, the book, uh, our book begins actually in a place of pathos yeah. uh, at a party in Toronto and a homeless man uh, weeping uncontrollably on the side of, of, the, of the dance floor, uh, weeping for his friend Iggy Spoon. And Iggy was a friend of ours as well, an Aboriginal First Nations man who, who, who died much, much too young. So that, that place of sorrow becomes sort of our, our hermeneutical entrance. What, what does it sound like if we can begin to empathetically, because it's not, it's not our experience, the experience of being an Indigenous person, but empathetically um, try to hear this text uh, from that place of sorrow. I just want to also share with you that the night that we launched the book, we launched it in the very same place. And we talked mm. about that very same dance floor. Mm. And, uh, and it was an amazing evening. A song called Iggy's song was performed probably for the last time because it's too painful to play. Two hours after our party ended, there was a murder about a hundred feet from that site. And it was Iggy's best friend. Oh my goodness. You know, James Smith. And, and so the, the, oh. 
we begin the book in sorrow. We launched the book re- remembering that sorrow. And by, by two hours after the launch, we're right back into the damn sorrow. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it, there's, there's, uh, it, it's incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, but somehow we think that maybe following the way of the cross uh, has to put us in those places. Though I don't want to be there. <laughs> no, no, and and nor does American Christianity want you there, right? I mean, we we don't we don't know how to lament. I mean, you speak mm-hmm. so much of lament. You have a mm-hmm. lament for creation in here. That's you know. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Um, <laughs> and so so I'm I'm so glad I asked the question that way because I don't know that I would ever think of approaching a text through a pathos like that. I always. You know, again, seminary, I, I'm looking for the historical grammatical uh, <laughs> reading here, and <laughs> and we kind of go from there. So so absolutely wonderful work, and I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. I mean, that is that is awful, and, and, and Romans has this unique sort of, it ends in, there's this striking note of hope throughout the book, too, that you guys capture very well. When you... Um, when, when when you get to some of the very seemingly well understood passages of atonement and justification and wrath, um, you know God put uh, to, to satisfy His justice, God put Jesus forward, and so on. Um, how do you how do you arrive at uh, a reading? Because I think what will sh- what really surprise people is that you're you're presenting an anti imperial reading. Uh, of a lot of these very classic sort of individual salvation texts. And I was wondering if we could just get into one example of that, whichever, I mean, we started on, on uh, righteousness actually meaning justice. Um, uh, but I'd love to, because I think I, I, I've, I've, I've heard in some circles, the beginning of kind of the, the anti, the anti, anti-imperial pushback, right. you know, that right. there's a, that, Hey, we're, we're seeing politics, however you define that where mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. And, and, and so I would, I would want to hear a bit about how you would respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm sure, I'm sure some people will be like, really? I mean, this is, and I love, I love the, the questioner, the skeptic that's in there. That is a genius maneuver because you, you use that person so very well to deal with some of these things. Maybe we should explain to your listeners how that works. Yeah, go ahead, if you would. So, so we, we have a questioner or an interlocutor, as we did in, in Colossians Remix. And, and every now and then, uh, you know, we, we happily going along saying what we want to say, and, and uh, her voice interrupts, uh, usually in italics, always in italics. And she yeah. says, wait a minute, can I ask a question here? Yeah. And, uh, and, and she, she shows up throughout the book. Uh, that's so one, good. One, one whole chapter is just conversation with her. That's the chapter on sexuality, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's in that chapter that she tips her hand, or we tip her hand uh, of of her gender, uh, and uh, and it's it's a technique which we as a writing technique. It's 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 a, a way that we hope um, allows the questions that the listener or the reader might actually be having a reader uh, gets to one of those interruptions and says, yeah, that's exactly what we think too. No, <laughs> that's my question. So absolutely. So that back to your, your, your and, question. And they are the questions that, uh, that we have heard 
presenting this stuff on Romans over the last 10, 12 years in various parts of the world. So that's, uh, so they are actually very immediate questions. But back to the imperial, uh, the question about the imperial reading of the text uh, and the pushback. I mean, I think part, part of why we haven't before been attuned to a lot of the imperial overtones um, of what's going on in the text is just that a lot of the language has become just familiar theological language to us. We right. use the language of gospel, talk about gospel. Uh, when we say peace be with you, we, we, you know, we have a certain meaning we pour into that. Um, mm-hmm. Even the word um, uh, righteousness, dikaiosune, or, or justice as we translate it. Um, a lot of these words had specific overtones in the first century that were used quite politically. And we're, we don't pick them up because we aren't, um, we aren't in the first century. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when you read Shakespeare in high school and there's always these little footnotes on the side explaining what all the words mean. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of would be helpful if we had that for some of the things in the Bible more often. Yeah. And we do have study notes at the bottom. Yeah. Um, but often they're interpreted from that theological paradigm again, the systematic yeah. theology paradigm, and yeah. not historically in terms of the first century. So, for instance, um, when Paul at the beginning of Romans says that he's proclaiming the gospel of God's Son, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he, he says the word gospel a bunch of times in that first chapter. They were expecting a victory parade to go along with that, mm-hmm. and they were expecting a um, they were expecting to to see the spoils of victory coming with that that good news. Those were the overtones. So when Paul very specifically says which gospel he's talking about, it's the gospel mm-hmm. of Jesus. It's the gospel of God. Um, when he's writing this letter, so that they'll know that this isn't the imperial gospel that that this is a challenge and the empires this was the pax romana right the empire of peace so when paul talks about being a people of peace and whenever possible live peaceably with one another he's he's using the language that the empire uses for the way that they act but everybody knows that romans peace is the result of violence Mm -hmm. right um And, uh, you know, and actually that's the, that's the language of our culture too, right? You know, yeah. for a long time, the Canadian army, we, we were called peacemakers. Mm. It was a peacemaking army. That's how we styled it. We still went out with guns and intervened all over the world with guns, mm. but we called it them peacemaking missions, mm. uh, which is a very in, disingenuous way to describe guys who are out there in that ga- engaging in acts of violence, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and, and that's what Rome did too. So part of, part of the, um, the pushback is because people are saying, well, we've never, these are theological terms. They can't have political overtones, but of course they did in the old Testament too, Hmm. right? In Isaiah, Hmm. the word gospel meant God was coming, you know, God is coming to save Israel. Right. And that was a political salvation. When the psalmist called out to God for salvation, they were saying, you know, come and defeat our enemies. That's what salvation would look like. And so, um, so even in Israel's story, these words were fraught with a lot more political overtones than, than we have given them in the, the New Testament. And, and once, once you depoliticized a text for mm-hmm. millennia, uh, then anybody coming along saying, 
actually there are uh, significant political overtones and implications of this text, uh, that is going to get pushed back, right? That's mm -hmm. always going to get pushed back. And mm -hmm. that's right, right. What does Paul mean by salvation? If you if you had to, I mean, I know that's a huge question. You spend a lot of time on it. But I almost think that the way you handle salvation is emblematic of how you handle some of the other theological concepts in, in the book. Well, so salvation has, as Sylvia just pointed out, within the Hebrew scriptures, uh, invariably has geopolitical uh, meaning. Yep, absolutely. Salvation means to be liberated from your oppressors. Uh, and to somehow think that when we get to the New Testament, it becomes uh, incredibly individualistic. Uh, it, it's about your personal salvation. Uh, kind of uh, misses the point of the central metaphor of the ministry of Jesus of a kingdom. It's a kingdom of God. It's a rule. It's an alternative reign. So when, when Paul talks about salvation, he is talking about uh, the reconciliation of all things. He's talking about the setting things right, and that includes individual life, but includes all of creation. All of creation is longing for redemption, uh, mm -hmm. Paul says. Uh, and and uh, so salvation, uh, it has to do with the reincorporation. I like, and I like the metaphor of incorporation because it has corporeality to it. It's an embodiedness, a, a reincorporation into the body of Christ and into the calling uh, to which we are called as, as stewards, as justice makers uh, in, in creation. So salvation sets free. It's, it's the process of bondage of adikia, wickedness or injustice, you know, the bondage of the empire. And, and for, for the characters we create in the book, so Iris, mm -hmm. who is a, a Gentile slave, and Nereus, who is a, a Jewish freedman who, who lives just kind of at subsistence level. He can just mostly makes ends meet, but not always. Um, for, for them, you know, salvation language would have, have very practical overtones, right? For, for Iris... Um, ideally, salvation would mean that she would be set free from, from her slavery. And she experiences that when she comes to the meetings of the other Jesus followers. She experiences a place where she's not treated like a slave. She experiences a place where she's given the we, where she's able to share in exactly the same food as all the people who are higher than her in status. Yeah. She's, she's, She's found a new family again because slaves, of course, in the Roman Empire weren't considered people. They were considered bodies and possessions. Even if they had children, those children were not their children. They were just the master's possessions. Yeah. Um, she couldn't have a family. But so she finds in Jesus uh, that freedom, uh, which for her is salvation um, to be part of this new community. Uh, that that reminds her of when she was free, of when she was, you know, before she had become a slave. So, yeah. you know, there's there it is it is personal, but also corporate because it's in in right. being part of that body that she finds that salvation. And that's why it's so important that the corporate body not divide itself along the traditional cultural lines, right? That's why. Right. That's why Paul and Corinthians 
is like, hey, just mm-hmm. so you know, <laughs> like some of you are falling asleep here because of this. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And I think one of the strengths of your work is really fleshing that out, both then and now. What does that What does that practically look like in in in, in community formation? Um, when you get to sexuality, uh, and and tell me how much or how little you'd love to talk about this. Obviously, it's a it, pretty incredibly um, pretty incredibly complex issue. And it's one that I and all of my fellow, you know, people who love Jesus and the church are trying to work, trying to work through. Um, and you get to Romans 1, which has obviously been pretty um, uh, central in some of the discussions. Um, how do you, how do you, uh, w- when you approach texts like these, again, a methodology, methodological question, how, how, where, how do you come from a place, you enter the text through sorrow in this kind of the same way? How do you come at texts like this that have been so polarizing and explosive? Well, um, yes. I mean, one of the ways we entered uh, Romans 1 as a text of sorrow <laughs> was thinking about that whole bit from Romans 1, 18 and following, which talks about the idolatry that surrounds Paul, the um, the the behaviors that idolatry gives rise to the sexual violence, the economic violence that you get after that, you know, everybody's been so focused on those texts about sex. Nobody notices he's talking about economics after the next little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, all of that for Paul, um, Paul is talking about God's deep sorrow about these things. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. And, and he actually, in the beginning of chapter two, then uh, kind of turns it around and says, of course, we're, you know, don't judge. You're all, <laughs> God's, God's been grieved about all of you uh, f- mm-hmm. for, for these behaviors. But then there's also the question about, you know, just historical context, basic historical context questions that we ask about anything, right? Yeah. Like yep. we don't, we don't phone people at the IRS and tell them that they're sinners because they're tax collectors. Uh, <laughs> no, because tax collectors are clearly sinners in the first century, right? There were different things going on. Tax collectors in the first century, you know, were, you know, kind of the collaborators with the Romans, right? And, right, you know, right. we don't necessarily want to project that on our civil service, though some of us might be tempted, but we don't go there because it's not, it's not directly analogous. So the question mm. is, is what we're talking about now in terms of um, – sexuality and same-sex marriage or homosexuality, is that the same thing as what Paul was talking about when he was mm-hmm. talking about sexual violence? And, um, well, on the one hand, we're talking about an orientation that we now know is not chosen. Um, Paul had no sense of anything like that, right? For him, he lived in a world where men were attracted to women and women were attracted to men, and that's the way it was. That That's... Uh, Anything different would be unusual, even though Paul was surrounded by a culture where sexual violence happened uh, against slave boys, um, boys of lower status, uh, by men, right? So pederasty, the mm-hmm. you know the sexual use of of young boys by men, was very common in Paul's culture. The way that was interpreted wasn't in terms of same-sex orientation. It was interpreted as this is how you blow off some steam. Mm. Because, of course, women had to be virgins when they got married. 
So, you know, it wasn't the case that men could kind of, and now men did blow off steam with nice metaphor, nice metaphor there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, there were temple prostitutes. There were other prostitutes, but by and large slaves were there for the sexual use of their masters, right. And their master's friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had slaves who were male and slaves who were female. And it was just interpreted as this is what you did to deal with your, your, you know, unbridled sexual passions. You used little boys because they were kind of like women. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's how things worked. Romans chapter one was written in a context. Uh, and don't forget, this is written to Rome, the capital city where the emperor lived. Um, people knew what the emperor got up to, partly because Caligula, um, the emperor, uh, <laughs> not at the time Paul wrote, but some people might have heard of Caligula. Uh, oh, yeah. He was the emperor too before Nero. Nero was the emperor uh, with a security detail and raped people that they found, men mm-hmm. or women. Both of them were known uh, for their sexual exploits and their um, uh, with both men and women and for their um, despicable way of trying to sully uh, high status women. So they would mm. rape high status women. So they, they, this stuff was talked about, right? Cause this was the capital, you know, people in Washington talk about a lot more things that happen in Washington than what hap- than what we, what hits the news. Right. Cause there's a grapevine. And so people in Rome knew about this, but of course they also saw this kind of sexual violence in their own lives, right? Mass Cause, slaves. Cause weren't the, weren't the households patterned after the Imperial household in that The way? households were definitely patterned. So, you know, the sexual violence of the Imperial household that happened in the normal households, people wore the clothes that the empire was wearing, emperor mm. was wearing, right? They tried mm. to model their hairstyles mm. on the hairstyles of the imperial house. So yeah, that was the model for, you know, what, what society, what's the held society together. So when Paul's writing about, um, you know, these sexual practices, degrading sexual practices, uh, what people would have thought of is those kind of violent sexual practices that men perpetrated against younger men or boys in the imperial house. And when Paul talks about women doing engaging in unnatural sex, mm-hmm. um, it's not at all clear that he's talking about women. Uh, the church fathers, mean women, with women, women. women with women, um, mm-hmm. the church mm-hmm. fathers interpreted that as women engaged in natural, unnatural acts with men. Hmm. So in the God, in the goddess mm-hmm. temples or or elsewhere, and mm-hmm. you've got to remember in uh, in the ancient world, um, oral sex could be considered unnatural. Mm-hmm. Um, it if 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 because it was a status issue uh, mm-hmm. as well. So you know things that that we don't think of in terms of status and power in our culture were considered oh. that in the first century. So it's not till the fourth century that it's thought that that's actually returning, return, referring my apologies to two women. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that would have been completely off out of Paul's radar. I think since nobody seems to have thought he was talking about that. So are these texts referring to what we're talking about when we talk about gay marriage? I don't think so. That's just a completely different context. It doesn't work. But the texts are talking about, sexuality and they're talking about uh 
an injustice because God, you know, this is that the, the, the God's wrath is manifest uh, against the wickedness, adikia, the injustice of, of human life and the ungodliness of human life. Because what can be known about God has been clearly known through creation. Hmm. So, so then you've got to say, well, what's he talking about there? Right. Is it talking about male female binaries? Does that no? Because that's about male female relationships. You said, well, what can be known about God? She so needs to then ask, well, where where in Paul's scriptures do we see anything that creation teaches us about God? And the answer is, of course, the Psalms. And if you look at Psalm 19 and Psalm 33 and Psalm 98, and I think maybe 148, in, in these Psalms, creation bears witness to the very character of God. Hmm. And the character of God is that God is a God of steadfast love, that's fidelity in love, justice, and compassion. So what Paul is attacking in Romans 1 are sexual patterns of life and then also economic patterns of life mm -hmm. that do not reflect God's justice, compassion, and, and, and faithfulness. So we actually think that, that Paul, un underlying his critique, and then we trace this throughout the, the, the rest of our book, but underlying his, his critique uh, is actually a normative vision of what it means to be created in the image of God and what that means for our sexual lives and for our economic lives. Hmm. So let me say one last thing. We could go on and on about this particular topic. You ask, you know, do we bring, is there a sorrel that is brought to the reading of these texts? And, and the answer is, is yes, there is another sorrel. And, and that is the sorrel of our LGBTQ plus friends. And, uh, and, and some might say, oh, so you're reading this way because you have gay friends. Yeah, sure. Sure we are. That, that, that doesn't disqualify our reading. It might give us a certain angle uh, and perspective on our reading, and then it's up to others to, to evaluate that reading, and, and that, that, that's fair game. So in the chapter of our book where we talk about sexuality, we end by bearing witness. We bear witness to the faithful lives and the lives of justice and the steadfast love and compassion of a whole bunch of our gay friends. And we name them, you know, because mm -hmm. we think it's, it's, it's time that, that we name uh, those folks whose lives have borne witness to us of what uh, Christian discipleship should look like. Mm -hmm. Holy moly. And uh, we even hit creation yet. I mean, holy cow, you have a whole chapter on that that is mind-blowing. Cell phones and watersheds and <laughs> unbelievable. And oh how, how, how about uh, drinking water out of plastic bottles, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, man, exactly. just had to call you out. <laughs> no, no, my goodness. It is, you got, listen. And, oh, boy, here he is. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth. Can you say hi to Miss oh. Sylvia and Mr. Brian? Hi, Sylvia, Brian. <laughs> okay, buddy, hi, Seth. How are you? How are you? Oh, good. Are you good? Hey, we're recording right now, okay? Yeah. All right, so I need you to go out that way. Perfect. There you go. go. Bye-bye. Thanks for the kiss. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's my entrance into uh, a lot of texts that I would never have had before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. What what's that? I mean it's it's um pretty amazing how that works. So 
Um, yes, in plastic bottles. It, it, I, I will. I'm going to do a whole intro talking about your book um, that I will spare you because I, I don't want you to, you know, get too cocky. But um, I just <laughs> want to say, <laughs> no, I just want to say thank you both for taking time today. I know you've got lots going on, and I'm very grateful uh, that you take some time. So uh, I'm going to count us down. I'm going to stop recording, and then I'd love to just say thank you one more time, okay? It's been our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Oh, my goodness. You guys are amazing. All right. uh, So Vox Community, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, and in these days, may he give us peace. Until next time, friends, thank you for listening. All right, everyone. It was so good to listen to that. We're trying something new, which is um, based on some feedback we got. We're going to, every time we interview somebody um, that has like something that we all are interested in hearing or saying, we want to give them the platform to show their best stuff, just like we just heard. And then Tim, Mike, and I are going to come on and sort of debrief and discuss out loud what it it. is we thought of it. Yes. Sylvia and Brian, what'd you think, Bonnie? Dang. Okay. I would like to say first and foremost, this is one of the first times I've ever done this. I finished listening and I went and ordered their book on Amazon. Oh, wow. I was so intrigued by it. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. I was so intrigued. I think a few things. I think it was a really good piggyback conversation from the Gombus one about hermeneutics, just mm-hmm, about how mm-hmm. they approach the text. Yeah. Um, I thought that was extremely interesting because kind of like he said, I don't know, you get this feeling, the way that we've been doing it, we, we need a new construct. We need a new approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Something that I felt, well, there's a few things. I want to talk about the sexuality chapter that they discussed but before that what did you think about when they were talking about um the political overtones that happen in scripture right so obviously there's politics in old testament and new testament but i'm not sure how i feel about or what i understand to be thus then we make it like about our own politics if that makes sense like i've always understood it to go okay so there's political overtones here so this is what it meant but i'm not sure about the transferring then into kind of mirroring it to our politics right oh that's so good that's so good um and that is something i mean when you read the book it is i I mean they go from romans into water tables and how you manage yeah trash and uh how you treat at least in canada the the first people the first nations people Mm. um i think that's and there was the i'm not familiar enough with the controversy to know what they're referring to but yes they turn it i mean they go pretty far and and i think their argument would simply be listen this was all this has always been anti-imperial and because empire exists it's not just a thing but it's sort of a um a power and principality that's always in the world. It, it, it therefore it always is to be resisted. And so we have to. Right. How, how does empire manifest itself here? Well, I mean, they would argue it's American nationalism, it's individualism, it's consumerism, it's it's anti environmentalism. You know, blah 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 blah. Right. So so I that. I, but I'm with you in the sense of, I don't doubt that justification or righteousness or uh, that would have been good news for people on the margins and have political mm-hmm. overtones. I have no question about that. Um, 
and I don't question whether or not there would be political overtones today. What I do right. question is is the translation of those political overtones into uh, a a X vision, a conservative vision, or a right. progressive vision, or a libertarian vision, right? Right. I, I don't know. That's the part. So I'd go one step further and say that that's the part I don't know how you map um, yeah. without just getting into speculation. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, would you agree? Because I, I come from this standpoint of like, anytime we're going to do any type of reading into the text or translating it, I mean, isn't even possible to do it unbiasedly. Right? I'm not sure well, that it is. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know? the, the post, the gift of postmodernism has been to recognize the reader's context matters, right, and not just the author's context, right. And so that Absolutely. comes with good and bad, though, because that's yes. really good because we're trying to figure out how to use this ancient book for today. Um, yeah. But I worry, like you just said, when it, I mean, I don't think it does the text actually any justice because I, it's this to me, it's the same thing as proof texting something. Hmm. As saying, I'm looking for kind of like what Gombas was talking about of like you, you're becoming up with almost a Bible code situation. Right. Right. So like for you and like, what is the line there for the lens? Like how much can we read into something and make it exactly parallel? And how much right. do we go? Uh, this is the essence of it. You, you, am I making sense when I ask you that? Yeah, like, yeah, I feel yeah. like there's yeah. a line, but I'm not sure what it is. It just, their conversation fell over my line <laughs> for the right, best right, as I can explain right. it. Right, right. Oh man. And just wait, just wait, Bonnie, to read, read this it. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so they are, they are working at the level of worldview and right. N.T. Wright, Walsh actually has done some work with N.T. Wright on worldview stuff. Um, and, you know, the, the, the questions that, that N.T. wrestles with in terms of who, who are we, what is wrong, uh, I think where is it going, what time is it, like those big questions. Uh, and, then, and then you get into symbols and praxis and, and the ways in which worldview gets fleshed out. Mm. So they're operating at, at that level and saying, okay, um, what are the symbols? What are the pra what's the praxis? What's the, you know, who are we in a, in twenty um, first century Western culture? What's wrong? What's our prescription? You know, what time is it? And so they're they're combining, they're they're trying to say in the same way that the Pauline retelling of the gospel was subversive to the Roman story. Right. To the Pauline telling of the gospel subversive to the American story. And in that general sense, that is, I th I think that is absolutely true. Right. I agree. Right. So so I'm totally, totally with them to that point. The issue is, and I'll, I'll frame it slightly different. Um, they very much oppose weaponizing Romans in a certain direction. Right. And, if, and that immediately opens up the counter charge. Well, they've just weaponized it too. Yeah. But, you know, in a much different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 um, uh, and, and, and then, so the, so the question, I, I mean, I, and I couldn't get there in the interview. The question was like, how do we avoid weaponizing texts at all? Or right. is that even possible if you have an opinion on them? Yeah. Right? The instant you have an opinion on them, is it possible to weaponize them? The answer seems to be yes. Um, so, so for me, what I what I began to do was w what the strength of the book was was how 
they put you in a socioeconomic reality so that you would hear in for with first century ears how these words and concepts so when paul starts by saying i'm a slave of jesus christ mm. that to us we're like okay if you were a slave in the first right. century in Rome and you're hearing Paul title himself thusly, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's that's a staggering thing. So right. they pick up on the socioeconomic uh, uh, good news of this on the Romans. Yeah. Uh, uh, from the Romans. Um, and I think they're just trying to map that then on, well, how, how did the marginalized uh, folks here hear the same good news? And um, and and would and and how would they feel the same things if you're one of the indigenous people or if you're a sexual minority or whatever? So so I think all of that's legit. The the issue um, is is again for me the mapping of specific policy recommendations over hermeneutical and exegetical considerations. Yeah, you know, and I Mm -hmm. and and so the line for me. Uh, to get finally back to your question, is um, elevating those policy considerations to the level of this is biblical. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I I think that's... No, I I totally do. And I think that makes a lot of sense because I want... What I want the text to do or be treated as is to understand the original context and then to let it sit there and then let us all work it out versus it like being put in writing, I guess. Yeah. I don't, that doesn't make too much. I mean, no, that's but, the construct, but, the platform they have. But yes, yes, and so the the thing that's so compelling about them though is they live out exactly. this radical economic vision. Yeah. I, I mean, and and you're just like, my goodness, this is so. I mean, I and I told him this. I think I was off the off there. I just said, you know, so many theologians I meet, I would never want to emulate. Right. Um, you know, the theology is great, but they're, but they are as people, they're just not, <laughs> there's right. nothing about them. You'd say, no, I want to be like that. But these two. These well, two and that made sense because when she talked about salvation, having practical overtones, yes. I wrote that like three different times in my notes. It like all bold because <laughs> to me, like, oh, that they literally are living that out. Like it's a yes. practical thing to yes. not use these plastic water bottles or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yes. And I was yes. like, oh, like that really hit hit home for me in terms of like, oh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about kingdom here and now. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. So that makes total sense with what they were saying when she said salvation would have been understood as having real practical overtones. Right. So the way that they're living that out makes total sense. And yes. it also makes me inclined to be to believe them and be compelled by the way that they're living it out. Do you know what I mean? Yes, because absolutely. it is a practical thing then to not use plastic water bottles or right. you know whatever it is yes, that they've put in absolutely. place. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 they've identified one of the biggest disconnects of traditional evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. which is the the separation from spiritual for uh, the spiritual aspect of salvation from everything else. Right. And so salvation just becomes about our forgiveness and our souls or invisible souls going to the invisible heaven or whatever. Right. Uh, when we die and instead for them, the, the creation care, and they have a whole chapter on this that just riffs off of Paul's groaning. You know, when he says, oh. you know, the creation mm-hmm. groans and they just riff on this, um, 
And uh, so, so I love, and that's what's so challenging is, is, you know, you can get past the, you can get past the policies or whatever, uh, but there's a deep, deep conviction about, okay, this, like in the first century, these sorts of common meals meant the reordering of the social social world of the first century right, right? when you when you mm-hmm. and they and they play this out in really creative ways when you show up as a slave to a church service and everyone's sharing a meal slave or free male or female jew or greek um all of a sudden you're like oh this is a whole new thing and we've lost right. that we've lost that bit of it Mm-hmm. into into our world and so they they I, I i i recommend the book it's it's just gonna be super thought-provoking yeah absolutely tim um, what did you oh hold on no go ahead i was gonna go to the next topic but nice tim do you have any uh, any thoughts on this yeah those things i was having a conversation with somebody the other night when we were talking about this community idea here in auburn yeah yep and about what it means to work with marginalized people. And then, and then we kind of had like a short little back and forth about the, pol- the like the political issues of it hmm. and, and how, you know, the person I was talking with was talking about how important it is to, to be involved politically and to vote for this and that X, Y, and Z. And I was like, hmm. yeah, but I think it's really interesting to be way ahead of that hmm. and try to affect change in policy by, by affecting the issues at the bottom level. Mm. If that makes sense. And I feel like they're talking about a lot of that stuff where it's like you are getting involved in the actual issues at hand, the things that are the t- core tenets of what it is that you would normally wait to argue about at the end result. Or, you know, like we, we're really good at fighting political issues at the political level and yeah. debating and arguing on Facebook and, and whatever. And it, it's a Memes. huge divisive thing. <laughs> it's a huge divisive thing with, within the Christian community as well as the American community and whatnot. But what was that? There's that. I can't remember the guy's author. The author's name. He wrote the book. Um, he was like the guy that started the Sojourners. Jim Wallace. Um, yes, he wrote a book called God's Politics. That I read a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that that book is divisive as well. But he had a. He was talking about Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King trying to affect policy at the top level and how that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So he went back to the bottom level and tried to and. Wallace called it changing the course of the wind, mm. like affecting the way in which the wind is blowing rather than just reacting to the effect of the winds, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of a sense. A lot of what they're talking about is kind of like that, like, you know, as you guys are talking about them living out what they're living out their beliefs at the bottom level, and then that kind of permeates out and reverberates up throughout everything else is yeah. very inspiring and very, I don't know, you just rarely see people who are really actually living out the things that they talk about or the things that they say are important all the way yeah. down to like the foundational That's right. That's level. Right. Well, That's and right. like for the long haul, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I think they're in it. They move to a farm. They're doing it. They're not like, they're very, like a this very month. We did an experiment or whatever. What did I, when I was listening to him, I was like, these guys are like granola punk rock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they pro- they, they're the probably question. The first question you asked them was about, where, where do you see Christianity today or, or whatever? And he's just like, it's just not dying fast enough. And I was like, yeah, oh, like laid it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're off. Let's go. I know. I know. And they were just, 
So awesome. All right, buddy, next topic for you. Okay, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to discuss, I was so intrigued, and this is what actually made me click the buy now on Amazon. Ah, I was very intrigued about what they were talking about when you asked them about sexuality. Mm -hmm. And he said, in Paul's world, it is we read into it what uh, homosexuality means today and mm-hmm. heterosexuality and what's happening. But in Paul's world, it wasn't that at all mm-hmm. like that. They didn't even have the same frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to bring that up because I'm that with the other conversations we've had over the past few weeks here is I'm intrigued by any topic, whether it be LGBTQ, whether w- women in ministry, anything like that. I'm intrigued by the, idea and notion that we are approaching this text in this completely different way mm-hmm. of going like that's not what they meant so we can't proof text it we can't look at it and proof text it but my question then is if how how do you know and what what would you say how do you know when it seems to me that it's a completely different world so paul isn't mm-hmm. talking about literally probably anything we're talking about. (laughs) So even in women in ministry, for example, which is obviously a hill I die on a lot, but, and I'm wondering like, have I even been approaching these the right way? Because we do a lot of explaining. Okay. Paul says this, but he means this, this is a situation, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, where do you draw the line? Where do you say, I'm going to take the essence of what they said and apply it now versus Mm -hmm. like, they're not, we can't even do that because they're not talking at all about what we're talking about. If that makes sense. And if that's the case, like for example, in the LGBTQ plus community, if that's the case, then, um, it doesn't seem that you could come to an affirming standpoint based on the scriptures. If that makes sense. You could not. Yeah, they, uh, to me, that's what they're saying. That's what I'm hearing is like, um, we can't take something that we can't prove text these texts at all or like explain it away and apply it to today because it's not at all the same situation or language. So yeah. then I'm wondering, what do you do then? What well, do you do them, with that? Well, for them, they they affirm. I mean, that led right. them to an affirming posture. Right. But what uh, I guess I don't, I didn't read it. So I don't yet. So I don't really know. But in your, like, what's the process there? Cause we've been talking so much about biblical process and how to do it. Right, you know, he talks right. so much about, you can't use systematic theology. Gombas is like, you can't do hermeneutics. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> what are we left with? <laughs> yes. No, that's so good. Um, and so, um, Gombas and I were riffing on, um, uh, an article by Kevin Van Hooser. Hooser? Van yeah, Hooser. I think you said that right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and NT does this and Walsh does this uh, about the idea of improvising, that that mm. you see the text as a script, right? The NT uses this. You you know this one, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so, so we have to be immersed in the text in order to improvise it faithfully. Mm-hmm. And what we have... Uh, at our disposal is we have tradition, we have the the scripture, the living and active scripture itself. We have community, and we have the spirit, right? And so that in that web, we are improvising daily um, right. about what faith looks like, and that and that part's true in the sense of you know the Bible doesn't talk about uh, in vitro or mm-hmm. um, uh, Amazon Prime Day and whether or not I should resist it, right? I mean, right, right. And so we'll have all sorts of interesting conversations. But 
the, the question you're asking, which is the most important question, is what defines faithful improvisation versus unfaithful right. improvisation? Im- improvisation. Improvisation, excuse me. So, so and, and people here will obviously, and this is where they engage with Tom Wright um, a bunch, because, because NT's take on Romans has been, Paul is, Paul is actually familiar with same-gendered romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they disagree with that. Right. Um, um, and, and I tend to side, there's a, there's a very affirming uh, scholar, uh, a couple, who, I, who just say, no, I think the Bible's pretty clearly um, non-affirming and it's just wrong. You know, oh, that's, interesting. That, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that's that's the that's the one thing that's the one sort of argument um, that I I am fascinated by. But that's a different story. For for so 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 somebody like NT would would question the claim um, uh, they had no conception of um, of romantic of, relationship of of same gendered romantic faithful relationships um the very the very interesting thing that that keys matt and walsh do in their book is they actually argue because because the big counter to the um affirming take on um on romans one is that it's you know primarily dealing with with uh power right has been the fact that paul seemingly brings up lesbianism uh which was not a power relationship Right. And and um what these two do is they actually deal with that in a way I've never heard before. Um and uh and so cuz cuz the typical rhetorical moves are uh, hey Paul wasn't talking about orientation here. Uh the counter is well actually he was aware of x y and z. Uh, right. and the counter to that is well he may have been aware of it, but they were always they always existed in power differentials. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then and then the counter to that counter is yeah, but then why would he mention lesbians um, that did not exist in power differentials? And then and then Keysmet and Walsh have a counter to that that right. I'm sure has been out there forever. Um, but was was the idea that 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 Paul wasn't referencing women having um, same gendered erotic acts with other women, but doing things that were considered unnatural with men. Right. That's what I've always read it as. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So all that is to say, um, the the line <laughs> the line is super fascinating. Bonnie just got up out of her chair, looked over <laughs> at Sai or a kid. I can't Lo- tell I which. I locked the door so the two year old did not enter. we're all it's so funny i've got a seth roaming around we all have children this is the the joy of podcasting in 21st century america so all that is to say um this is um and and they get into some leviticus stuff and and um and i'm not sure about that that was one one area where i was like ah I've, i've heard some pretty compelling stuff that what paul's doing in corinthians is riffing on leviticus in more than than just the temple prostitution sense, but all that is to say, um, the the book's super interesting, and I wanted to ask them about sexuality because that you could tell that there they were they were pretty forceful, but but they were they were nodding a lot to NT because they're disagreeing with him, right? 
And um, and so I just thought it was I thought it was just a cute not cute but you know what I mean yeah. like a, a um a fun sort of dynamic behind the dynamic yeah um, I know so so anyway I mean it's definitely uh, this this is a very very our progressive friends like if you're really out there <laughs> like on progressive policy you're going to i mean you will just love this if you're a very conservative policy person you're going to you're going to react to the policy but neither one of those should be primarily dancing on policy the 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 point they're making which is utterly profound to me anyway is that salvation has practical consequences yeah and they can't help but be political yeah and well, economic and I, I, I like that. And that's why I brought up the question about the LGBTQ that they talked about and how you approach the text, because I think that it seems right now polarized in our society that certain people that approach the text a certain way come out with these certain outcomes and vice yeah. versa. But yeah. I'm compelled into learning how people get to where they are. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Because I think yes. sometimes my own bias and my own blinders aren't necessarily my outcome, but how right. I arrived there. And so I'm really compelled by their, just like you said, their practical overtones and the way they've dealt with the text in a way that right. might be new or different. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And and they do that with all of Romans. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm I mean, excited to the, read it. They, they, I mean, this is like a thick, thick book, but they do that with all of Romans. So, you know, it's one of those one of those things where, and this is what's coming at me. Now, uh, back to your question about you know, what's the the big question is what's the Bible for? Mm-hmm. What's it supposed to do in us? And um, I've been I've been really wrestling with that. I've been reading some John Walton about law. Mm-hmm. I've been reading um, uh, Pete Enns' latest, How the Bible Works. Uh, the Gombas stuff, man, I've been really chewing on going back and reading Gombas stuff. And they're all arguing that the goal of the scriptures, obviously it's salvation in in one sense and revelation in another sense, Mm -hmm. but practically it's wisdom that, that what we're, we're not, we're not trying to find eight steps to God's will uh, wisdom is knowing what the right thing to do is in situations where we're confronted with with uh, conditions that aren't covered in Scripture. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's the discipline. How do you cultivate wisdom? Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 and in that sense, Gombas is right. It's not just a method that cultivates wisdom. Right. Um, and and it, it's, it's not just... Um, Re, although it includes method and it includes my context, but mm-hmm. it's bigger than that. And I think that's the part that's super interesting Agreed. is, is okay. We have people in Jesus name looking at the clobber texts used mm-hmm. in LGBTQ um, conversations right. say, Hey, we've read these wrong. You've got 2000 years of church history that says no, the, and Jewish worldview that, that says, no, this is, you know the the Jewish conception of homosexuality was bigger than just power differentials, right? Um, um, and temple prostitution, uh, and and again, that's a debatable point. But right, you know, if that's true, then it's tough for me to take Jesus out of his Jewish context, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what Paul's saying in Romans. Um, but but the idea of Scripture and why it comes to us in such a messy way. 
um, is the idea that it's it's cultivating in us discernment and wisdom, mm-hmm. right? The relational kind of walking with God. Um, and that's why it's so varied and so messy and so uh, comes in so many different forms is that it, there just isn't, there isn't one way to capture this big kingdom movement that God has, you know, been working on and through and towards, um, since right. the beginning. Um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but, but I, I'm, I'm taking your thoughts and, and going, yes, I'm, I'm fascinated by that too. Not just in the sense of how my context leads me blindly right. to certain conclusions, but also I've, I've just thought the goal of the, I've always thought the goal of the Bible to be right information leading right. to right relationship with God. Right. And, and there's part of that, part of that's true. Part of, it's part in of there. that is yeah. true. But it's but it's bigger and it's more relational and and so how do you live, how do you live wisely, right? Well, and isn't that so with attention when you have these big issues like LGBTQ and women in ministry and different things is to say, what if I postured myself towards wisdom and going, right. how can I live wisely and discerning and in this tension, not t- just towards right answer, right? And um. I don't know. So that this book kind of, I think the way they approach it brings that up a little bit yeah. for me. So, um, yeah. And they, it's have a, a, they, and they have, I'm sorry, Bonnie, to interrupt you. No, you're good. Um, they have a, a hermeneutic of sorrow. Yeah. Like that was, that super was really clear too. To mm-hmm. And the, and the book starts, the book starts with, um, this hermeneutic of, of sorrow and, um, I was like, wow. So they lament a lot mm-hmm. and it's super fascinating. Um, so, uh, so yes, I mean this, we're embodying what the book is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very exactly. thought provoking. Yeah. It's really good. So we hope you guys enjoyed listening to this. We'd love to hear your thoughts, but also we are going oh. to give away a copy of the book. Um, Boom which is super fun. So um, there'll be more details on our uh, Facebook and Instagram. uh, But I think it's going to be something like one, you know, comment one thing that you learned or question you had or thought provoking you had, and then we'll do like a randomized generator to pick a winner and send them the book because um, I just think it'd be cool for readers or listeners to get their hands on what we're talking about. I love it. And this was all Bonnie. This is, see, this is the millennial mind that we have lacked, <laughs> you know? I mean, Tim, Tim and I are Pearl Jam fans. Tim, I'm just how coming you? in with Taylor Swift and marketing yes, ideas. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tim, how old are you? I just, I just turned 40 this year. Yes. So Tim and I are in our 40s. I'm going to group us together. Hey, yo. And, and Bonnie, you are in your... 30s. Oh, man. But can I tell you, for a while at my old job, I pretended I just like to one or two people that I was 50. Because That's funny. It was, it was online and they didn't see me. So I just thought it would be hilarious then when they saw me. And it, they were so nice. They were like, you look so good for 50. And I was like, That's good because I'm not. Because if, if you don't know, if you've never seen Bonnie, Bonnie has the remarkable gift of, of she's looked like she's... 20 for the last you know 15 years it's been absolutely crazy so all right so um so anyway i hope you liked the uh the the after afterglow yeah let us know how you like this debrief 
It's a debrief. Tim, I thought Tim's comments were very insightful. As always. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we'll give you the last word, Tim. I I don't know if I should. The trash man's coming through right now. It's going to be awfully (laughs) loud. This is middle age. This is it. Locking the door, hiding from our children. Worried about the trash trash man. man. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, although I will say, and I, I know this is lame, but like seeing our trash removed is one of the highlights of my week. That is weird. It, it is weird, like because our trash people, they take anything. Oh, ours do too, and piles of it. What day does your trash person come? Oh, Wednesday. So today, so my day today is make me to pick up the the small trashes, and then I go rummaging through our shed and garage, and I just throw stuff out there. Oh, that's yeah, it's so awesome in California where you like if you overflow your can by like exactly they charge like, you. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> can't do it. No, no this, I mean, ours go are ahead. so good. And size like really into it, like you are. And sometimes he jumps on his longboard and chases him down the street with like boxes on his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But I, ours I is just... on Monday, so you really start fresh. Oh, oh. yeah, that's See, nice. Uh, yeah, Wednesday's tough because you're not. Yeah, yeah. I want to start fresh, or I want it on Friday, so I go mm. into the weekend. The thing about Monday that would be great is it give me the weekend to kind of set stuff out. Yeah, there you, you know go. what I mean. Because I, I mean, I rummage, and they take. I mean, I've they've taken broken mirrors and recliners. Right. Oh, uh, so signs you know you're old. <laughs> I love trash day. I love trash day. (laughs) You don't know the highlight of my week? (laughs) It's watching the trash guy show up and take all my crap and throw it in a landfill in which Keysmat and Walsh would be like, what the H are you doing? They're going to come to your house on a Wednesday. Seriously, my goodness. And they're biodiesel. Yes. All right. Bonnie, why don't you why don't you do our blessing and then oh, we'll let I the poor people go. I don't know the blessing go. by heart. Okay, you do it. all right, all right, I'll do it. Okay, Tim, do you know it? The problem with how I know it is we used to. So at church, every time we oh, lead boy. worship, we would sing a we would oh, sing a blessing at the end. Sing it, and Tim, so we had. Aaron, I'm now not singing it right time. now, but we sing had, it. Come on, come on, yeah. come on, come on. I don't even Tim, have the real microphone Tim, on. Tim, Tim, may the Tim. Lord bless you and keep you. Come on. I'll do it one of these times. I'll, I actually was thinking about I'll record it because I also used to close church with um, the Jude 24, 25. Yeah. We do that as a song as well, just to yeah. like offer a blessing to people as we're leaving. Yeah. I'll record well, one of those one time and we'll, and we'll put well, it. Well, I don't know. I'm recording right now. So, <laughs> so why this seems just... like a good time. Listen, yes. guys, <laughs> I just rolled out of bed. It's true. I'm not, I'm not, it's not noon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well then our friends, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance to you. (laughs) And in these days, give us peace. I'm going to remix that. Especially on trash day. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.